The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. We'll turn to Romans chapter 15. We'll begin there in a moment. Romans chapter 15. It's wonderful to be with everyone this morning. It's, of course, always a joy to be able to worship together in spirit and in truth. I hope this lesson will continue to, to be of encouragement and be edifying to us as we look to God's word for that instruction we need for our lives. In Romans, the 15th chapter, we have in verse 4 a familiar text to us. Many of us, if not all, could quote it by heart. In Romans 15 and verse 4, Paul writes by inspiration saying, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. It's oftentimes quoted in the context of a sermon on authority, especially at the transition from scriptural principles of authority to illustrations of those principles in the Old Testament. For example, we might go to Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu and show how disobedience is deserving of the punishment of God, that their fire they offered was a fire that God was silent about, it was not commanded from the Lord, and therefore it was unauthorized, and, and they deserved to die, and in fact did die at that time. And we can turn back to passages like that because of the principle discussed in this particular verse, although this is not the only place in the New Testament we read of it, that the things written before were written for our learning. It's often a scripture we quote when we do character studies of the Old Testament, and look into the lives of those heroes of faith or even individuals who are given as negative examples, things we should not follow in and we should not do. And we say that these things, rightly so, were written for our learning. But I want us to consider furthermore in a little more detail this particular verse that we're very familiar with. The things written before were certainly written for our learning, but notice he says that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The context considers patience and comfort and the production from scripture of the patience and comfort, the production of hope. And so what the Old Testament does is it teaches us specifically in this verse of two certain qualities that are necessary for us to have a confidence of our salvation or a hope of our salvation. It helps to understand the context. In chapter 15, the context is continuing from chapter 14 when the Apostle Paul dealt with the problem of individuals who could not in good conscience eat meat, eat certain meats that, that were perhaps restricted under the Old Testament. And these Jews, having become Christians, could not yet shake the fact that that was released and they were no longer held by it. And so they couldn't in good conscience eat these certain meats. And perhaps of those who are of a Gentile background could eat certain meats. And there was the discussion of how our liberties should not supersede our love for one another. And so the one who is weak in their conscience, that is not that they are weak Christians, weak in their faith in Jesus, but weak in their understanding and their conscience concerning the liberty of eating meats, that those individuals should not judge the meat eaters because the meat eaters are right with God. It's a liberty granted by God. But also, the meat eaters should not look down upon with contempt the people who can in good conscience eat meat 
as if they're lesser in some way. And that's when chapter 15 continues that thought with the application. We then, who are strong in verse 1, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. And here's the example given. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And after he quotes the Old Testament, that is when he says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. For those who had the ability, without defiling their conscience, to in good faith eat those meats, and therefore stand with God not having defiled their conscience, for them to bear with those who couldn't in good conscience eat meat and not eat that meat around them so as to cause them to stumble, they'd have to have great patience and love for them. They'd have to be able to bear up with them and to put up with their inability to do those things which God has deemed as freedoms or liberties. It would take great patience. But then it would also take comfort in regard to understanding of those individuals that they are right with God and that they could all dwell together in unity, understanding that Jesus died for every single one of them and that every single one of them, if indeed they are in good conscience and in accordance with God's law, stand in God's sight as just. And also this patience and comfort, as we'll note later on in the lesson, would continue to progress throughout the context, giving comfort to those of the Gentile background that the scriptures that are written for our learning indicate very clearly that even Gentiles are those who are subjects of salvation according to the gospel. And these things would bring patience and comfort to one another, which would promote unity and certainly promote a submission to the faith and an obedience to God and right standing with him. Consider the patience and comfort of the scriptures. Understanding the basic principle, firstly, that these things in the Old Testament are written for our learning. There are those who hold the view that since we're under the New Testament, we ought to throw the Old Testament out. We should never study it. We should never preach from it. We should never consider it as a group, as a congregation, as a church. But that goes against so much in the New Testament. And it goes against the fact established in the Scriptures that the Scriptures are eternally relevant for anyone and everyone. It may be that the Old Testament is obsolete in regard to its being the authority we're under. It's no longer the law that is something we're amenable to. No one is amenable to the Old Testament law. There's not a soul that is left on earth that God expects to submit to every facet of the Old Testament. It's been done away with for the Jews, and those were the only people who were ever held to it. And so now it is not there as a law we're to submit to, but it is there for our learning. And there are many principles that foreshadow, as we know, things of the New Testament and many examples we can look to to learn. And in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament to establish a principle and teach a truth to the Roman audience of his epistle. That's not the only time we see that in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, the Israelites are used as a warning for those in Corinth who apparently were puffed up so much that they were willing to extend the liberties in a similar context to Romans 14, although not exact, to the point of making their brethren stumble. And the Apostle Paul was using the Israelites to show them that these people were saved and out of their own arrogance and weakness, 
They actually perished in the wilderness. They lost their souls. They didn't make it to the physical promised land. And that's an example for you. Don't follow what they did. Be warned. He says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And he goes on to show several things that they were guilty of. And he says, do not become as they were. Do not do what they did. And in verse 11, he concludes it with this. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age has ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What the Apostle Paul is not saying is that these events were predetermined by God and that they happened simply out of the predetermination of God for our benefit in the future. They happened out of the free will choices of men. But he does say that they were recorded for our learning. They were written for our learning. Any historian who takes the pen and puts it on the paper recording a historical event that has just occurred does so because they anticipate its benefit for the future generations. We want this recorded so people remember the good that was accomplished or the bad that was accomplished so that we can avoid making the same mistakes so that we could progress as a society because as soon as the annals of history are lost, we digress into the same mistakes we made before because we're not knowledgeable about them. That's what Paul's saying. God chose specifically, pointedly, and recorded these events in the exact way that he deemed in his infinite wisdom would most benefit us today. Certainly written in a historical fashion for those who were of the later generations in the Israelite nation. But there's a reason why the Old Testament is still preserved by God's providence for us today. It's full of examples. It's full of principles. It's full of writing that is beneficial to us, that admonishes us, those of whom the end of the ages have come upon. Likewise, in Hebrews chapter 3, the Hebrew writer uses the Israelites, again, as an example, quoting from the psalm, saying, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confident steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. He's saying they had a confidence. They had the hope of salvation. They were delivered. They were in fellowship with God, but they did not heed his voice. Their hearts were hardened. They rebelled and they lost their lives for it. They lost their souls for it. Take heed of their mistakes and don't follow their example. But we also can look to the Old Testament for our learning in matters such as we described earlier, principles of authority. In Hebrews, the seventh and eighth chapter, the apostle or the Hebrew writer, rather, is making the point that Jesus was a necessary high priest, but in order for him to serve as high priest, there had to be a change of the law because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning. And he progresses with that idea in chapter 8, speaking of the Levitical priesthood and the fact that if Jesus was on earth, he would not be a priest because there was a priesthood under the tribe of Levi. And what they did in verse 5 is served as the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And he gives an example. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. He's saying there's a specific pattern under the old law for the priesthood. 
That's why Jesus couldn't serve as a priest under the old law. And that's why there is of necessity the change of a law because there's a need of a better and more lasting high priesthood. And that's the pattern that was established in Psalm 110 that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When God gives a pattern like he did with Moses in the tabernacle, it is expected to be followed. And we know that in part by those kinds of examples in the Old Testament. Consider the Apostle Paul's words to the young evangelist Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14, when he encouraged him to continue in the things which he had learned and had been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, he says, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures he's referring to that Timothy was taught as a child are the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the entire record of the New Testament like we have today. And before Timothy was obedient to the gospel, before his mother was obedient to the gospel, we know his father was a Greek. They didn't have that full record. They weren't following this New Testament pattern. It hadn't been brought to them yet. They were not obedient to it yet. Those scriptures that he was raised with are the Old Testament scriptures. And it's important to indicate that because of what he says they do for us. They make us wise for salvation. He's speaking that the Old Testament will lead a one to salvation. Certainly not completely by itself, but especially in regard to the fact that as Paul records in Galatians 3.24, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. We cannot understand the New Testament without the foundation of the Old Testament. It's written for our learning. It certainly stills teaches us and the reason why it still teaches us the reason why it's still beneficial to us is because like all scripture it's from god that context continues into a verse we're very familiar with in second timothy 3 and verse 16 and after he mentioned the holy scriptures that timothy was taught from his childhood that make him wise for salvation he goes on to say that all scripture is given by the inspiration of god and it's profitable for doctrine reproof correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, the context is speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. It would no doubt include the scripture of Paul's writing to Timothy at that very moment and any other New Testament writings that would be recorded for us and that we have today. But he's saying that the Old Testament makes us wise to salvation. The Old Testament, it teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, it instructs us. And the way of righteousness, it completes us. It gives us an ability to live for God. It is certainly beneficial. In Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, Peter likewise said that we have the prophetic word confirmed or more firmly established, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The reason it's profitable is because it doesn't come from God. It didn't originate with God or didn't come from man, didn't originate with man, but it came from God. It originated with God. And that's why it's as a light that shines in a dark place. Without God's revelation, men are ignorant. And what Peter is encouraging them to do is to, as we see in chapter 3, look at his and the rest of the apostles' writing but also the prophetic word, the Old Testament, the entirety of the Old Testament. Look to that, not to these false teachers. It's beneficial because it comes from God, especially 
as opposed to the false doctrine which came from those men. But consider furthermore that it's beneficial because it comes from God and so it's certainly impressive as we look at it because the things that were indeed recorded were not just all the positive things. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, the example given for us as recorded in the Old Testament was the rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness. And these things happened to them as examples and were written for admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's one of the proofs, I think, one of the convictions I have that God exists and that the Bible belongs to him. Who else would record the negative to that degree? Who else would record what we read of in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12? Why wouldn't they just take out the time when a man after God's own heart committed adultery and then murdered someone to cover it up in David? Why would that be recorded? Because it was recorded for our learning. God saw it fit that we not only see the positive, but we see the negative. And everything in the Old Testament we can use in some way to our benefit as those living in this age that was to come and is now here serving under the New Testament before God. But consider the exact things that are mentioned in Romans 15 and verse 4 as are beneficial looking to the Old Testament scripture. It's written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Consider the patience of the scriptures. It's quite obvious as we've already established that patience is necessary. If we're to get to heaven, if we're to have our hope firmly established and have a confidence of eternal life with God, patience or endurance is absolutely necessary. In chapter 14, he spoke of this conflict between Christians in Rome, and it wasn't just those in Rome, but Christians in many churches at that time, where a Jew and a Gentile who were completely segregated were brought together in this one faith into one new man who is called a Christian in Christ Jesus. The middle wall of separation, as Ephesians chapter 2, has been broken down. And what that did is forever change the landscape of spiritual life before God the Father, especially as it pertains to the relationship between those who are Jews and those who are not, those who are Gentiles. How would they get along? How would, there be in, how would there be unity? How would they be able to live like God called them to live? Through the patience that is established and introduced in Scripture. Namely, as was quoted in Psalm 69, in verse 3 of Romans 15, that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ did not consider himself, but considered us, and he died for us. So consider your brethren is what he's saying. Have patience with your brethren. And he continues after verse 4 saying, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may be with one mind and one mouth, may glorify God the Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. How? As you appeal to the Old Testament and you glean from it the patience that it offers. In order to dwell in unity, he says, you must have an ability to forego those liberties for the sake of your brother, and that's going to take an immense amount of patience. Consider other facets of Scripture as it pertains to the necessity of patience. We read of one that is very familiar in James chapter 1. and verse 2, James records, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It is necessary to have patience as a Christian because it's necessary to be have patience in order to be mature. And we're called to that completion. We're called to that perfection in regard to 
maturity. But one of the ways in which God's going to cultivate that patience, help it grow, is through the endurance of trials. When a trial comes, it is an opportunity to prove ourselves to God through an enduring of that and maintaining of our faith in spite of the trouble, the tribulation, whatever that test may be. And once we prove ourselves in that regard, we come out the other side a little stronger, closer to maturity, especially in regard to the virtue of patience. But we've got to understand that about those trials. It produces patience and understand that patience is not something we could either take or, or give and leave. It's something that is an absolute necessity. And if we're going to endure trials and trials are all over the path to heaven, then we're going to have to have patience. And the Old Testament offers us that patience. In chapter 5 of James, he encourages those who are being oppressed by the rich who are in the world and quite possibly some of the rich that are their own brethren. And he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't give up. Don't let your faith go. Don't be so discouraged that you fall short, but endure this knowing that the promise will be fulfilled. Because the opposite choice that Satan lures us with and dangles before our wanting eyes is to draw back, is to give it up, is to, to stop living in such a way that would cause others to persecute us, to stop living in such a way that would cause us to go through hardship. But the end of that, as we discussed in Bible class this morning, weigh the consequences, weigh what is at the end of those choices. The end of that is a terribly negative thing, which will lead us to the loss of our own souls. Consider in Hebrews 10, when the Hebrew writer once again quotes the Old Testament, because it is indeed written for our learning, especially in the context of patience or endurance and its necessity. In Hebrews 10, addressing Christians who are being persecuted and are wavering in their faith, he says, Therefore, in verse 35, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Weigh the outcomes of your choices, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise, quoting from Habakkuk 2, the Old Testament written for our learning. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those to believe to the saving of the soul. Patience is needed to get to the reward, but the reward is needed in our, our looking forward to the future and to having that as our goal in order to produce patience. They go hand in hand. If we don't have our eyes set on the prize, we're not going to be able to endure. And if we're not able to endure, we won't reach the prize. And consider how that worked in the lives of men in the Old Testament. Consider the examples back in the context of James 5, considering trials and the need to endure as the farmer endures to reach that, that reward of his crops. An Old Testament character is mentioned to, to produce patience, to, to encourage, to teach patience, as Romans 15 and verse 4 tells us. Indeed, James writes, we count them blessed who endure. Well, how do we count them blessed who endure? Give an example, James. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Why would we ever endure? Why would we ever make the decision to be patient during this trial? Not, why not just go for what is good now? Why continue in this tribulation? Well, 
The Old Testament will teach us. Look to the patience of Job is what James says. Remember in Job chapter 1 when Job is profiting and he's righteous and, and he's being benefited by the, the love and the mercy of God and he's wealthy and he's got everything good going for him. And little does he know behind the scenes in the spiritual realm, Satan is seeking to devour him. And Satan causes bad things to happen to Job to test his faith, to see if he really is one who will remain fide- uh, faithful to God and, and keep his fidelity. And, and one day, the Sabians raided and killed his servants by the sword and took his animals. And while a servant was telling him that that happened, at the same time, one came and said that there was fire that came down from heaven and consumed his servants and his sheep. And while that servant was telling him about that negative news, the Chaldeans raided and took his camels and killed his servants with the sword. And while that servant was giving him that bad news, a great wind caused the house to fall on his children and they died. And while that servant was coming and telling him his news, obviously Job was overwhelmed. He fell to his knees. But what the scripture tells us is that in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. He endured. The devil tried a little more and caused him to be struck with painful boils to the extent that his wife even said, why do you hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job did not sin in that regard. He kept his faith. He endured. And we can learn something from that because his endurance was not without reward. His endurance led to some positive outcome. In James chapter 5 and verse 11, you've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. He's very compassionate and merciful. And in Job 42 and verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Why would I want to put up with this? Why continue to be faithful, keeping in mind that part of the patience and the endurance is at the very heart of obedience. A person cannot say they truthfully endure trials if they decide to go off and sin in the midst of trials. That's not the endurance God calls us to. That's not the comfort God gives. Job maintained his integrity. And like Job, the end intended by the Lord for us is much better. In James 1 and verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation or trials, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Consider the patience of Joseph. Remember Joseph's life when his brothers, out of jealousy, because he was given that coat of many colors and saw the favor of his father for him, they sold him into Egypt, sold him to slavery, and they lied to their father that he had died and he hadn't. And then Potiphar's wife, after he had risen to that place in Potiphar's house of, of authority, Potiphar's wife brought a false accusation that, that Joseph essentially tried to, to rape her, and Potiphar puts him in prison. And then he comes up out of prison having interpreted the cupbearer's dreams, and he doesn't remember Joseph at all, and so he has to wait for two full years, as we read in Genesis 41 and verse 1, when Pharaoh would have a dream and need its interpreter interpretation, and he finally remembers Joseph, so Joseph eventually rises to only second to Pharaoh in Egypt. And then the famine comes and brings his, his brethren in the land, and remember their reaction? They were afraid when they found out who Joseph was. In Genesis 50 and verse 19, look at Joseph's response. He said, do not be afraid, for I am in the place, am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Consider those words in light of all the history of Joseph's life that we know. Those words don't just come. 
They're not easy to say. After all of that adversity, after all of that hate from his brothers, after all he went through for him to say, don't be afraid. You know, you may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Everything is good. All is well. You're forgiven. Don't be afraid. That comes from a man who had endured by trusting God continually. He never lost sight of the fact that his creator and his Lord was in control and it worked out for his good and the good of God's people. Patience is absolutely needed and we can glean patience from examples like from men of Job and Joseph and many others. Be patient as they're patient and reach the rewards they reached. Isaiah 40 and verse 31 tells us, that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting on the Lord is about patience. It includes endurance. And that includes a constancy in faith and obedience. Trusting always that God's ways are the best. So always following Him. We need patience and we can take it from the Scriptures. Consider also though that comfort is necessary. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul mentions the fact of trials and tribulations. And he praises God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Verse 4, he comforts us in all our tribulation. And that's necessary that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And he also gives another necessity of comfort in trials because if we're afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And it's effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. And he continues... And so even comfort and, and patience go hand in hand because we cannot endure without comfort and we won't be comforted unless we endure. And so those things work toward the end of ultimately our salvation. And we help each other having been comforted with that same comfort. It's effective for enduring sufferings. And sufferings will indeed come. The apostles knew it all too well in Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 7 through 12 discussing the fact that their call to apostleship brought about many hardships for the sake of bringing salvation to all the, all the world. They were the harbingers of the gospel and of hope. And in verses 13 through 15, the apostle Paul mentions his confidence. The fact that he knows in verse 14 that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. So all of this suffering is not to be worried about. But the ultimate reason why he had that comfort seen in verses 16 through 18. He walked by faith. He saw the unseen. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart. In other words, we're comforted. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary and the things which are not seen are eternal. And it progresses in chapter 5 to look to the fact of the resurrected body promised to all those who are faithful in Christ. The reason why the Apostle Paul and the other apostles and any other Christian for that matter can endure through the common trials and tribulations of life is because they're comforted knowing that God has made promises that will indeed be fulfilled. That He's watching out for us. He's caring for us. And while our outward man is being torn down, He's building up our inward man through His inspired Word. We can glean that from the Old Testament. Is certainly found in abundance in the New Testament, but in many ways it's found in the New Testament by looking to the Old Testament. Consider some men who learned patience, but also were comforted in the knowledge that God was with them and that promises remained steadfast and sure. In Psalm 3, David was fleeing from his own son Absalom when he, re 
rebelled against David and usurped the throne. He says how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. People say there is no help for him in God, but he takes rest and solace and comfort in the fact that you, O Lord, verse 3, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. That idea of lifting up the head, I think, is easy for us to understand. Our head hangs low when we're discouraged, when we're sad, and we tell each other from time to time, pick your head up. God does that for us. And he does that for us for providing for us, for looking out for us, providing us a, an avenue of prayer to go to him for help in time of need, to cast our cares upon him, for he cares for us so that he can protect us and ultimately give us the reward in the end. For verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. In Psalm 11, a similar situation occurs when either it's David fleeing from Absalom or fleeing from Saul who's seeking his life. And this idea is that things have gotten so bad in verse 3 that Someone tells him that the foundations have been destroyed, so what can the righteous do? But David finds comfort and is able to endure because he knows that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He's seeing everything that happens. And upon the wicked he'll rain coals of fire, but the righteous are those whom he loves. And he'll uphold them in his countenance. That's comforting to know. As bad as things may get, we can take comfort by looking to men like David who took comfort knowing God's in control in the worst situations of life. Consider also, though, a woman like Leah in Genesis 29. In Genesis 29, Jacob approaches Leah's and Rachel's uh, father, Laban, and he wants to take Rachel as wife. He sees her, and she's beautiful to behold. He falls in love with her. He wants to take her as wife. So Laban cuts a deal with Jacob. He says, you got to work for me seven years. I'll give you... Um, Rachel as wife, but he tricked him, gave him Leah, according to their custom that the firstborn or the oldest daughter would be given first. But then after that happened, it was quite obvious that Jacob was not very happy about the deception of Laban. And it tells us in Genesis 29 that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. In verse 39 or 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And so after that seven years, he gets Leah to be his wife, is unhappy with that because he loves Rachel more. Laban gives Rachel for his wife, and then for seven more years he has to work. But I understand this time that, that Leah didn't get seven years by herself. He worked seven years, then Leah was given, then Rachel was given, and then he worked seven years for Rachel. So Leah had like no time to benefit from her husband and to feel his love in any way. Rachel was always the one that was loved more by Jacob. But in verse 31, it indicates that God sees that and God cares about it. So he opened her womb and it says in verse 32 that Leah conceived and bore a son while Rachel is not able to have a son. She called his name Reuben and notice what she said. The reason she named him Reuben is because the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. She conceived and bore another son and named him and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son. Verse 34, another son, a third one. This time my husband will become attached to me. And then in verse 35, a fourth son. Now I will praise the Lord. In other words, God cares about this struggle. We see the same thing when Hagar was given to Abraham so that he could have a son and Ishmael was born and Sarai put them out and God looked upon them with favor and they named the place Beer Lahiroi, the Lord sees. 
He sees and he cares. And we can take comfort from that fact. Matthew, the 10th chapter in the limited commission, Jesus tries to give comfort to his disciples. And he tells them, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light and what you hear in the in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Notice this. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. How would those disciples be given the strength to endure all of the opposition and hatred and the physical abuse of those they were taking the gospel to. Well, it would be from the comfort that God cares for them. They're of more value than the creation and that God's ultimately in control. He has the ability to save and to destroy. So the way you're going to endure by doing God's will, even in these most difficult circumstances, well, here's some comfort. God cares for us. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, we're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to us. In the physical realm, there's much to worry about and much discomfort that is fomented by the plights of life. But we take comfort in the fact that God's in control. He cares for his children and he protects his children. And we can see that in situations like with David and Leah and far many other situations. And what this patience and this hope or in this comfort does, as it's gleaned from Scripture in those Old Testament examples, is it produces hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, we're born again or begotten again to a living hope. That hope is introduced and produced by the obedience to the gospel. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and the sincere love of the brethren. So love one another fervently with pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And so it only makes sense that we turn back to the word of God to solidify that hope. We see that in Romans chapter 5. In verse 5, that hope that is produced by that patience and comfort of the scriptures is further solidified by the love of God displayed by the inspiration of scripture. The Holy Spirit pours the love of God in our hearts. In chapter 5 of Romans, it especially considers the sacrifice of Christ, but we know that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And so what we see is that hope produced and it's further solidified even by the Old Testament written for our learning. It gives us structure looking to men like Abraham, Hebrews chapter 6 talks about, who were promised. And those promises, after they endured and were faithful, came into fruition. Verse 17, the reason why that confirmation or that, that uh, oath and that swearing and that promise was given by God, it was the determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, so that we might have strong consolation, verse 18, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. I want us to notice verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the tempest of life, what holds us firm in the same spot is our anchor in heaven. And the reason we have that anchor, the reason hope acts as an anchor and keeps us stabilized is because we know that the men who hoped in God before were not disappointed. That's why it's recorded in Hebrews chapter 6 and other places. That's why we read about the faith of Abraham in spite of all of the conflict and all the opposition he faced. He held fast to his integrity. He held fast to his faith. He held fast to his hope. It never wavered because God is faithful. 
And if God looks to Abraham and provides him with a fulfillment of those promises, how much more firm should our hope be as we consider those examples? In Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. He left family. He left land. He left his original religion. He went to a land that he did not know, and he did it all because he looked to that city which has foundations whose builder and whose maker is God. He desired a better, that is, verse 16, a heavenly country, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Likewise, hope activated the obedience and the fervency of Moses in the same chapter of Hebrews 11, because when he became of age, in verse 24, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why? Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt because he looked to the reward. He had a hope. Something was greater to him in value than anything that the earth could offer. And because of that hope, he pressed forward in obedience and faith to God. That hope that we see men had in the scriptures is going to solidify our hope and motivate us to further obedience. Back in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13 the Apostle Paul continued this idea of hope. And he said, May the hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The context and the reason for that hope is established in quotes from the Old Testament. The Gentiles could have hope. They could have comfort from the hope that they gleaned from Scripture. And they could have a confidence of their salvation in a great part by reading what the Old Testament addressed to the Jews actually said about them. There in Romans 15 and verse 9, the Old Testament is quoted, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, says Isaiah, There shall be a root of Jesse and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. And that's when he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. It's through the reading of those Old Testament passages. It's through the understanding of, of God's will, especially as it foreshadowed its fulfillment in the New Testament, of the examples of the men of old and ancient times who had their faith in God, who endured and were comforted with the promises of God and held fast to that hope and were not disappointed. All of those things can be produced by the Old Testament. Indeed, the Scriptures make us wise to salvation. They give us the strength to press on. And as we look to those men who were comforted by God and who endured in their faith before God because they had a hope of reward and they died with that hope, we too can take that same comfort and allow it to motivate us to further faithfulness to God, to press on and to be consistent with that and to understand the practical nature of that patience and that comfort gleaned from the Old Testament examples. It's not to continue in your own direction and have some kind of a comfort of mind and solace, knowing that somehow the grace of God will cover all of those things. But it's the patience and the comfort that comes from obedience to God's Word. To have that endurance in faith, always doing God, what, what God wants us to do, no matter what, no matter what may come in our lives, negative or positive or both, and we endure knowing that God's word is true, we're comforted by that, that our hope will not be disappointed, and in that way we'll make it to heaven, just like anyone else that is recorded for us in Scripture. 
We're all going to be saved by the blood of Christ and through our faith in him. And so we can follow that same direction as illustrated in the Old Testament and reach our home in heaven as well. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel, those examples stand firm for you. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, the Israelites were given as an example of salvation only to be destroyed. And the example was given in parallel to the baptism that Christians are to engage in to be saved. You cannot be saved unless you submit in faith to the gospel. And its call is for you to be baptized into Christ. Then you'll rise up and walk in newness of life, but not a second before you obey that precept. We can assist you in that this morning if you haven't made that step. And if you have and you have other spiritual needs that perhaps we can assist you with, the invitation is also extended to you. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.